in an experiment. Yeah, we didn't know yet. Why is light so far? Like, it sounds so simple. They had no idea. But now the data speak. I find this not only refreshing, but, but at some level astounding. Nature. Welcome back to The Nature Podcast. This week, how careers are marked by successful streaks and the lessons from Cape Town's water crisis. Plus, the link between coral reefs and rats. I'm Sharmini Bundell. And I'm Adam Levy. Sharmini, what would you say has been your biggest success? Oh, um, well... There was the time that I got like a week's worth of food for under a fiver in the reduced section at the supermarket. I mean, that is very impressive. But I did mean the biggest success of your professional career. Oh, right. Um, I don't know. I don't really have sort of peaks and troughs. I think I'm more of a sort of steady stream of brilliance type person. It's interesting that you think that of yourself. But it's just that in our next package, Noah Baker has been investigating career success. And a new paper suggests people's success tends to come in bursts. But maybe you're the exception, Sharmini. Oh, well, I mean, I have always considered myself pretty exceptional, but I might have to hear more about this research before I decide. Well, let's hand over to Noah. Think back to 1905. Teddy Roosevelt is sworn in for his second term as US president, Henri Matisse leads the first Fauvist exhibition in Paris, and over in Switzerland, Einstein is about to do something quite special. Albert Einstein, at the age of 26, published several discoveries that changed physics forever. This is Dashan Wang from Northwestern University in the States. By the summer of that year, he had explained Brownian motion, discovered a photoelectric effect for which he won the Nobel Prize, and developed the theory of special relativity. And before the year ended, he wrote down the most famous equation on Earth, which is E equals to mc squared. Dashan describes this string of success as a hot streak. In a Nature paper this week, Dashan investigates the hot streak phenomenon, asking how they might shape career success. But before we get to that, a bit of background on studying success. Recently, my group has been uh, very focused on this uh, emerging area called science of science, which is a, a quest to turn the scientific methods and curiosities on ourselves. This kind of research is fairly new. Here's Phil Ball, a science writer with a particular interest in the science of success. The idea that we can use science to understand human behaviour has really only come about in the last maybe couple of decades um, in a serious way. And a big part of the reason for that is that we now have access to huge amounts of data that has allowed people to start looking generally statistically at what humans do to try to look for signs of regularities, of statistical regularities, um, just in the same way as there are statistical regularities in the way molecules behave. But in his past work looking at scientific careers, Dashan has found anything but regularity. In my earlier co-authored work, we found that uh, for a scientific career, the biggest hit in the career actually occurs randomly in the career. So it could be, in other words, it could be within equal probability to be the very first work of your career or very last work of your career or somewhere in the middle. And we find over and over that rule, what we call the random impact rule, is very robust. But it actually raises a deep 
puzzle for me because it makes me start wondering then what happens if we finally produce a breakthrough right because on the other hand we also tend to think you know winning should be guessed more winnings this conflict between anecdotal evidence like einstein's hot streak and the statistical suggestion that success is random posed a puzzle for dushin to pick apart the problem, he delved into the careers of thousands of artists, film directors, and scientists. Dushan's first job was to find suitable metrics to quantify success, tricky for three such different disciplines. That's the first question, right? Because the success has uh, depends on so many different dimensions. So by definition, any quantitative measure we have only imperfectly captures one of the many dimensions that we can use to quantify success. After much searching and consulting previous work, the metrics Dushan settled on as a proxy for success were, for scientists, number of citations, for artists, price at auction, and for film directors, IMDb ratings. Sure enough, Dushan found that the success of any given piece of work in a person's career appears to be random. But when he looked deeper, he found something else. Although each hit within a career occurs randomly, their relative timing, however, follow highly predictable patterns. So, in fact, these two schools of thought, these two seemingly contradicting point of view, are actually can be unified together by a hot streak phenomena. Dashan explained how this kind of phenomena works statistically. And as you progress along your career, is all of a sudden you reach a certain point that you are elevated to another level. It's like you are not yourself anymore. And, and then you, you start to publish a work that's follow a fundamentally different distribution than what we saw uh, you did otherwise. It lasts for about a short period of time, then you fall back to where you were. The model seems to fit well across careers of film directors, scientists and artists. And that suggests that the hot streak phenomenon is associated not with individual career types, but with people more broadly. To Phil Ball, it reminded him of another phenomenon. The immediate thing that that said to me is that um, what one of the patterns that has been seen in other kinds of human behaviour is called burstiness. And it's precisely this, that we do things in bursts. So, for example, when we do our emails, we don't sort of you know, send them randomly through the day. We have a little burst. So it seems that this sort of pattern in various ways is a characteristic of the way people organise their, their lives, organise their behaviour. It seems that many people have one hot streak in their career, and a few have two. In very rare cases, people may have three. But what causes them? Well, despite their efforts, Dashan and his team couldn't come up with an answer. We find, although the hot streak seems universal in the domains we studied, we don't yet know actually why it happens and what triggers it. Dashan hopes that with more work, they'll be able to start predicting when a hot streak may happen or how long it will last. But as of yet, it's unclear if that's a goal which can ever be achieved. Here's Phil Ball again. It'll be interesting to see whether any sort of predictive capacity comes out of this and whether i mean i think you know another thing that occurs to me and it's something that we've certainly seen in in uh, efforts to try to understand earthquakes um whether there are any kind of precursors that are to detectable whether you can tell that you're just on the verge of having a, uh, a hot streak appear but it would be very interesting if looking at correlations there as physicists do you could see that you're starting to approach your hot streak that would be very interesting 
That was London-based science writer Phil Ball, and before him you heard from Dashan Wang from Northwestern University in the States. You can read Dashan's paper plus a nature editorial over at nature.com forward slash nature. And if you want to hear more about his previous work, we have a video about it on our YouTube channel. Just search YouTube for Is a Scientific Career Predictable? Now, we all love a good beach holiday, don't we, Adam? Yeah, we certainly do. Thailand, Fiji, the Maldives. Where would you pick? I'd probably go for the Chagos Archipelago. Where? The Chagos Archipelago. It's the location of a paper published this week all about how rats impact coral reefs. Oh. Wait, how could rats affect coral reefs? That is an excellent question, and here's Ellie Mackay to tell us more. When it comes to doing scientific fieldwork, a tropical island like those in the Chagos Archipelago probably sounds like an ideal location. But as I heard this week, it's not all margaritas on the beach. No, far from it. It's, <laughs> it's, it's hard work and it, you know, it, it's hot. It's, it's far from a holiday. I lost three kilos on the last trip I went on. This is Nick Graham, lead author of a new paper exploring some of the complex ecosystems on the Chagos Archipelago a chain of coral atolls in the Indian Ocean. His team have been hard at work uncovering a fascinating but worrying chain of events that links the arrival of invasive rats with the health of coral reefs in the surrounding water. And it's all thanks to poop. The Chagos is home to a huge number and density of seabirds which feed on nutrient-rich fish in the open ocean. When these seabirds come to roost, the nutrients in their droppings get washed onto the shallow reefs nearby, so fish there grow bigger and faster. These fish then graze on the corals, preventing a build-up of algae which would otherwise slow the corals' growth. But as with most tropical islands around the world, the vast majority of the islands in the Chagos archipelago have been invaded by rats, which have wiped out the unprepared bird populations. Without the birds, there's no poop and therefore less nitrogen runoff, so fish are smaller and there's less maintenance of the coral reef. So introduce rats on the land and you harm the coral in the ocean. Nick Graham sent me an audio recording from one of the rat-free islands. And I gave him a call to ask him what it's like standing on these islands. When you um, set foot on one of the bird islands, the birds are very, very noisy. The skies are full of birds flying around overhead. The vegetation and the trees are full of birds that are roosting or sitting on nests. Um, it's, you know, it's a really alive place. It's a vibrant place full of frigate birds, shearwaters, boobies, terns, noddies. And the islands smell. You can really smell the pungent, the guano, the bird poo in the air. And what about the other islands, the, the rat-infested islands? You sent me some audio from there as well. It's completely different. The skies are empty, the islands are quiet, there's next to no seabirds on them, you don't have the pungent smell in the air. It's, it's chalk and cheese, they're, they're completely different. And, and this difference is all down to the rats? That's right. So the islands with no rats on them have about 760 times more seabirds than the islands with rats. This is a huge difference. And so to compare the two islands, you've measured lots of different factors. Nitrogen levels in the leaves and soil and in the tissue of fish and sponges and algae. You measured fish biomass and diversity. 
You sampled parrotfish bite marks to measure grazing rates and coral erosion. One strange thing I noticed that you looked at was damselfish ear bones. Why was that? That's right. So the interesting thing with fish is that the ear bones in fish lay down growth rings very much like a tree does. So you can actually quite accurately age a fish by the the rings that are laid down annually uh, in their ear bones. These ear bones are called otoliths. So we removed the otoliths from fish um, on islands with and without rats to look at their growth rates. And how fiddly a technique is that? How big are these ear bones? And do you put them under a microscope to count the rings or...? That's right. So the, the, the otoliths are very small, you know, maybe four or five millimetres wide. You have to fix them onto a glass tile and then very carefully grind um, the, the edge of the otolith flat. And then you can look at that smooth surface and count the growth rings that way. And I think this is the first time that the influence of seabirds in terms of the nutrients they're putting into reefs have been shown to influence the growth rates of a vertebrate. And the the results you got from all of these measurements, the numbers are pretty big. The rat-free islands had 250 times more nitrogen, 50% higher biomass of fish, three times more grazing of the reef and four times more bioerosion of the reef. So were you surprised to see this much difference between the rat-infested and the rat-free islands? This was a high-risk project. Uh, I didn't know how the results were going to turn out and we were completely blown away by just how strong the signals are. So it was really amazing to see just how important these seabirds are for the coral reefs. And what are you hoping your research will be used for? Because you've sort of put a call to action at the end of your paper. That's right. Uh, I think the study really speaks quite clearly to the benefit of de-ratting tropical islands. We're constantly trying to look at ways to bolster the the health of coral reef ecosystems, which are really at the front line of impacts from climate change. And it's very difficult to find tangible things we can do for reefs, but rat eradication, I think, should be a high priority for conservation and management efforts. We know it can be done. It's not nearly as costly as as a lot of other management interventions. And we know that, that it would have a huge benefit for terrestrial and marine ecosystems. That was Nick Graham from Lancaster University in the UK. We also have a video breaking down the link between rats and reefs. Watch that over on our YouTube channel, youtube.com forward slash nature video channel. Still to come later in the show, Britain is on course to exit the EU in a matter of months, and science organisations are arguing there's an urgent need for immigration reform. Hear all about that in the news chat, but now it's time for our top stories from elsewhere. It's the Research Highlights, brought to you by Noah Baker. After a long day in the lab, you might fancy putting on a virtual reality headset and immersing yourself in an interactive video game. But if your day job is studying molecular dynamics, well, you might want to bring that VR kit into the lab. Researchers have been exploring whether off-the-shelf VR headsets and controllers could be useful for studying and manipulating 3D molecular structures. They created an interactive simulation and asked people to complete tasks such as threading methane through a carbon nanotube or tying a knot in a protein. Using virtual reality proved a more efficient and intuitive way of exploring the model molecules, even more so than a touchscreen tablet or a computer and a mouse. Read more on that in Science Advances. 
3D printing can be used to make all kinds of different shapes and objects using all kinds of different materials. Now, researchers have devised a way to 3D print objects with both soft and rigid parts. They use photochromic resins that can be exposed to light to alter their flexibility. This means that certain sections of an object could be hard and rigid, while other parts are soft and flexible. A tiny resin butterfly, for example, could be printed with a rigid body and wings, but flexible joints between them, without the need to print any actual moving parts. Find more in Advanced Materials. Earlier this year, a catastrophic water shortage in Cape Town was in the news. You'll probably remember seeing images of Cape Townians queuing at municipal taps, and there was much talk of Day Zero the day the authorities might have to shut the taps off as the water ran out. Three successive years of drought, the worst the area had seen in more than a century, had severely depleted reservoirs. By the end of 2017, as the peak of summer arrived in Cape Town, water levels were frighteningly low. City authorities fined citizens for using too much water and blamed climate change for the water shortage. But Professor Mike Muller from Wits University says that this is not fair. According to Muller, the hydrology models all predicted what was coming and it was poor planning on the part of city authorities that was to blame for the water shortage. Climate change or not, says Muller, the crisis could have been averted if scientists' warnings had been heeded. Our reporter Lorna Stewart gave him a call at his Johannesburg office. The models had certainly said to Cape Town that by 2015 they really should have increased their water supply capacity because they were reaching the limit of what could reliably be supplied. So the hydrology and the modelling um, did wave a red flag, but for a variety of reasons the, uh, the officials concerned decided, uh, I, I would say, to take a risk. Uh, and it's always very uh, risky to gamble against nature. Nature's got a very perverse sense of humour. What would you expect them to be doing to increase supply? It sounds like if the rains don't come, the rains don't come. Some water supply problems in the city are inevitable if there's no rain. Well, speaking as a practitioner, what we do is in the case where there's variable rainfall and we're not sure, for instance, how we're going to supply during the dry season, we will build a dam, we will build storage and we'll make sure there's enough water in storage to see us through the dry period. So a lot of this is about estimating how long the dry period will last and making sure that there is an ability to supply during that dry period. It's a difficult balance, isn't it? Because this is a drought so severe that it would usually be only expected, well, I've seen several different numbers, but certainly a very unusual event. Do you really think the government should be expected to fund large, expensive infrastructure projects for something which might not happen? I think, uh, you know, that's that's precisely the argument that uh, the Cape Town City Council used. They've now <laughs> been able to see what happens when you take that kind of risk. The, the model seems to have done, then, a good job of predicting what was to come to pass. But as the climate becomes more erratic and unpredictable, how well are existing models going to work there? You know, I mean, this is an, an, it's an interesting technical problem, uh, which is about how do you capture non-stationarity uh, i.e. changing conditions in a model which you, uh, you, you use with fixed data. And the answer is that you keep updating the data. Even if climate change didn't cause this, could it have still played a role? There's a, there are a lot of predictions about rainfall uh, in, under climate change and suggestions that there are going to be more droughts rather than less droughts. 
uh, and more floods rather than less floods and more extreme floods rather than less extreme floods. Uh, certainly for the Western Cape uh, part of South Africa, uh, the models do show that there will probably be less rainfall in the future than at present. Um, we're not seeing that trend very strongly yet. Uh, certainly, I don't know too many people who would say it is definitely happening, but the models are certainly very insistent, and these are the climate models. The climate models are very insistent that there will likely be less rainfall in the future. And that's one of the things that uh, has to be taken into account in planning. If we can manage today's climate variability, and we have a very variable climate, we will probably be able to manage tomorrow's climate change quite effectively. So what are the lessons to be learnt from Cape Town? What does Cape Town and what do other cities need to do to prevent another similar or even worse water shortage in the future? On the technical side, um, we're in a happy position in South Africa of, of actually having a very good modelling system, if people would take notice of it, which puts hydrology and uh, supply options and demand projections together and makes recommendations about what's necessary. But what we're finding is that human behavior, encouraging people to use less water, uh, regulating how they use water, is actually almost as difficult as predicting hydrology in, uh, in variable climate. People call it the soft side of the business. It's actually a much harder part of, uh, in terms of how hard it is to make it happen. Uh, we've got to do the hard work of making sure we can predict and influence how people behave. Because in the end, people's behavior actually has a very large influence on, uh, on the systems that we try to manage. There does need to be something of a longer view in all of this, doesn't there? I mean, some of the measures that I read about being taken to deal with the water shortage, buying bottled water, using disposable plates, cups, cutlery to save on washing up the water, running dehumidifiers to sort of extract water from the air. They all make sense in water terms, perhaps, but they're going to drive climate change. They're all energy intensive, aren't they? And, and that's, that's one of the reasons one doesn't want to see people running into emergency uh, responses, which tend to do things which perhaps in the long term are silly and expensive. What the crisis has triggered is a lot now of the sensible responses that, by the way, were proposed um, almost 10 years ago. And it's a little sad to see this, but I think it's human nature. We, you know, we, we hope to avoid the worst, and when it happens, we scramble to catch up. And that is, unfortunately, in many urban areas, the way that we address these long-term challenges it becomes very inefficient for societies. You do damage to the infrastructure because it gets abused during these kind of uh, shortage periods. It's not good for economic activity. Some of our farmers have had to sort of dig up vines and orchards. The tourist trade will take a year or two to pick up again. And it would be better for everyone concerned to do the right thing at the right time. That was Mike Muller talking to our reporter Lorna Stewart. The Cape Town dams are twice as full today as they were this time last year, so the situation looks a lot better than it did a year ago, although, of course, no one is relaxing until they are full. Give Mike's comment piece a read over at nature.com forward slash news. Finally, this week, it's time for the news chat and reporter Lizzie Gibney joins us in the studio. Hi, Lizzie. Hi, Adam. Now, on the 29th of March in 2019, the UK will, at least in theory, be leaving the European Union. Now, this is an issue for a huge number of things, but why could it be a somewhat big issue for research? Well, research generally in Europe is extremely collaborative. 
And crucially, there are researchers, there are scientists who cross those borders at the moment completely freely. And there's a huge amount of concern that that will not potentially remain once the UK leaves the EU. And what are the scales we're talking about here? What are the numbers of researchers crossing into the UK? Well, this is something that is surprisingly hard to pin down. So essentially, it seems like through the various different routes, there are at least around 20,000 researchers from outside Europe who come to the UK. Um, And we also then try to look at the number who come from Europe at the moment. Now, because there's this free movement currently... That means that actually there aren't official reliable figures on these numbers. So we've had to um, draw on some data from, for instance, um, the Higher Education Statistics Agency to figure out um, new starters in UK universities who come from European nations and also to make some estimates. And it seems like overall there may be perhaps tens of thousands more researchers who will need to somehow pass through the visa system once European researchers are included within that uh, post-Brexit. What are the proposals to, to fix this situation after the UK is not in the European Union? Well, what most people want is to reform the system as a whole. So it gets better for any highly skilled worker to come to the UK, whether they're from Europe or from the rest of the world. And making the system just quicker and cheaper, because at the moment it can cost something like £16,000 for a researcher to come with their family to the UK. Now, that's an enormous amount, and that's way more than it costs in most other countries. It might be a couple of hundred dollars if you're going to Canada, for instance. So there are lots of reforms that could be made that would be very useful for everybody. But on top of that, there's this worry that, well... Is that actually going to be at all possible? You know, Brexit is coming at us like a steam train. And whilst there's a transition period between uh, the end of March 2019, which is technically this cutoff point, and then um, the end of 2020, and there are some interim measures then, but this should all apply from 2021. Now, that's not a long time, given how much else the government is going to need to do um, in that period. So there's a lot of concern that if we don't get some special measures in place for European researchers to kick in immediately at that point, there might be a big stymieing of the flow that at the moment is so crucial to UK and European research. This isn't the only thing that remains to be sorted out regarding Brexit. It's coming at us 29th of March 2019. And we've just had the resignation of the Brexit secretary, the foreign secretary of the country. There's a lot that needs to be done. I'm not sure this is going to be the top of the government's priority list. Well, that's right. Their immigration is something that they've only committed to saying they will they will publish their proposals on um, after September. So we've already got um, a few months to wait. And, you know, that's bringing it quite close up to the line of the uh, the end of, of the, the this period of negotiation. Um, we, we had a line in our story saying um, that the UK cabinet, that's the, the senior decision making body, senior ministers, are split on whether um, citizens from the EU should have any special privilege in terms of coming to the UK after Brexit. And I think that is perhaps playing it down slightly to say they're split, given that we now know the senior ministers are completely divided to the extent that they are quitting in their droves. We, um, we're totally aware that there are still huge amounts of uncertainty, which is unfortunately a tagline I feel we have to attach to any Brexit story. But we're scientists. We need to embrace uncertainty and accept it as part of our storytelling. We do indeed. Well, from the lows of Brexit to the highs or potentially not highs of a new drug just approved from the US Food and Drug Agency that is based on cannabis. 
what's this drug aiming to do? That's right. So the drug is called Epidiolex, and it's a treatment for um, epileptic seizures. And it's based on uh, cannabis compounds called um, cannabidiol. Um, so yes, the FDA has just approved it. And this means that the US Drug Enforcement Administration in the States has to somehow reclassify that drug so that it then becomes legal for, for doctors to actually prescribe it. But is medical marijuana not already legal in many states across America? It is. It's legal in 30 states as well as the District of Columbia, but it's not legal federally. And this means that the way that it's classed means that researchers have to jump through an enormous number of hoops to actually do any research with it at the moment. So what would actually be the hoops required to, to manufacture a drug like this? Because the um, drug is still consigned to this very restricted category under federal law, that means that you have to go through, you have to spend a lot of time and money to, to comply with that law because what you're handling is effectively an illicit substance. Then there's also the problem of how you actually get enough of it to do research. So there is only one lab that is certified to actually provide other labs with cannabis and it's extracts and that's um, at the University of Mississippi. So what the US Food and Drug Agency are looking at is this uh, this drug for epilepsy but what other research is underway using compounds from cannabis? Well aside from this um, treatment for, for epileptic seizures there's also um, potential in terms of pain relief. So one, one study from uh, Columbia University looked at um, people who both smoked marijuana and took a much smaller dose of an opioid and that they got the same pain relief as people who took a full opioid dose. And of course, there's um, a bit of a crisis at the moment in terms of opioid addiction, for instance, in the States. And so there might be potential there to prescribe lower opioid doses. So that's just one example. It's important to note, though, that the US Food and Drug Agency is potentially just approving this particular drug. It's not necessarily approving cannabis-based drugs in general. That's right. And if that happens, then researchers in the States might not be able to um, ramp up the research in the way that they'd like to. It's actually going to be legal in Canada to consume marijuana, both medically and recreationally, as of the 17th of October. Um, and Canada already has a lot of biotech firms who are coming up with innovative ways of making cannabinoids, including some of those which are um, much rarer and harder to create um, by genetically engineering them and growing them in yeast, for instance. So there's a lot of potential for a boom there in Canada that the US might not be able to exploit. Lizzie, thank you for joining us. For more on both those stories, head over to nature.com forward slash news. That's it for this week, but don't forget to check out our video explaining those ratty reefs over on our YouTube channel. And tune in to next week's show to hear about a scientist who has a very mechanical way of working. I'm Sharmini Bundell. And I'm Adam Levy. Thanks for listening. <laughs>